for joining me today here on Bible Studies with Russ. Uh, we're picking up today in the book of Revelation again. If you remember last time, uh, we, we began looking at the introduction to the book, and uh, we finished last week looking at the character and nature of the book. Uh, we mentioned also towards the end of last, our last study that we were going to discuss the Caesars. And I have listed here, at least uh, for our purposes, I have 14 uh, Caesars listed, beginning with Julius Caesar back in 63 to 44 BC, ending with Marcus Aurelius <clears throat> in 161 to 180. Um, let's see here, there's one. The first Caesar to claim he was a god or was god it was back in 37 to 41 AD with Caliga Caesar. Um, for our time period, we're, uh, for, we're looking at the book of Revelation. You have Nero Caesar in 54 to 68, uh, Vespasian Caesar 69 through 79, Titus Caesar 79 through 81, and Domitian, Domitian, uh, Domitian uh, Caesar 81 and 96. Uh, between 85 and 89, uh, see here, uh, various poets began to address him as, uh, address Domitian as, uh, as master and god. Um, and you have some other Caesars here listed here, but the ones we're focused on are uh, Nero and Vespasian. That would fit, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, the time period in which uh, we are uh, looking at here for uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, I believe here, let me get a look back and look here, the date um, between uh, 81 and 96. Okay, I said it wrong. Um, I have here, many scholars say Revelation was written before AD 70 in the time of Nero. Many others say it was written around the end of the reign of Domitian between 81 and 96, AD 96. Tradition, uh, he's, as we mentioned last time, over, overwhelmingly votes for AD 96. Which would put it during the time period of uh, of Domitian Caesar, the end of his reign, and the start of uh, Nerva Caesar, between 96 and 98. Okay, the seven churches. The seven churches, as we're going to mention, this is uh, found in the first three chapters of Revelation. The seven churches are now the only ones in the province of Asia. Uh, Troas is also mentioned in Acts 20, verse 5. Colossae in Colossians 1 and verse 2. And Herolopolis, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, in Colossians 4 and verse 13. Um, why these seven? Uh, there's various ideas. Look, they're located on the great road that goes in a circle through the interiors of the province from Ephesus. Uh, thus, the churches were, were strategically uh, located. Some claim uh, these are the only churches where John had done missionary work. Some have claimed these seven bore the title of uh, Metropolis, of a Metropolis, Metropolis, uh, and were the chief cities of uh, the of the postal districts of that of the province or the county seats. The number seven, fifty-four times in this book, is regarded as a symbol of perfection. It indicates the church as a whole, as a whole then and in the ages to come. Um, common feature the features of the seven letters: salutation, including the command to write; Christ's description of himself. Uh, his commendation of the church, his condemnation of the church, uh, so commendation, the positive, the condemnation, the negative, an appeal and warning, an exhortation, and then a promise. Regarding figurative language, and this is the last section before we get into our text of Revelation chapter 1, 
Uh, figurative language, some rules for the interpretation of figurative language. And I have here, let's see, one, two, three, four, six rules for the interpretation of figurative language. Figurative language. And then I have uh, eight, I believe, here for how to tell when figurative language is used. So rules for the interpretation of figurative language. First, let the author give his own interpretation. Ezekiel 37, verse 11, John 2, 19 through 22, and Matthew 13, 18 through 23 are examples of this. Uh, second, the interpretation must be kept within the context. The interpretation must be kept within the context. Uh, compare literal and figurative accounts or statements of the same things. Uh, one reference here is John uh, 7, 37, 38. Uh, another rule for interpretation by the resemblance of things compared. Uh, another one is accept any, accept any inspired interpretation. This is basically an expansion of rule number one. And lastly, we must be careful not to demand too many points of analogy. Uh, a lot of people really get hung up on the figurative language, and we're going to look at it in more detail than probably I have in the, in the past when I, whenever I've taught it. Uh, I don't typically go into great detail about it. We're not going to go into an extensive detail and, and go into the history behind a lot of, a lot of things, but we're going to go into it more than what I have uh, typically. Um, so basically, we, we don't want to, the, I think here that point is don't get too hung up and miss the big picture of, of the point of, of the letter. And then how to tell when figurative language is used. First, when the sense of the context indicates it indicates it when the sense of the context in, indicates it figurative language at least in my mind a lot of times is pretty obvious the, you know the the dragon uh it's figurative of satan for example um you know the beast there's not a literal beast that we're talking about here uh again figurative um for the most part, at least in my opinion, you can. It's pretty clear a lot of times when things are figurative and not literal. Um, but it says so. First, if the sense of the context indicates it, basically based on what you've been talking about, um, a word or sentence is figurative when the literal meaning involves an impossibility. Uh, and one example here, I have two here from Psalm 18 verse 2 and John 15 verse 6. So a word or sentence is figurative. When the literal meaning involves an impossibility. Third, the language of scripture may be regarded as figurative if the literal interpretation will cause one passage to contradict another. And again, scripture does not contradict. And so that's something to keep in mind. If a literal interpretation demands actions that are wrong or forbids those that are or forbids those that are God, and then uh, again, it must be figurative. Again, have here another uh, cross-reference here is Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. Uh, next, when it is said to be figurative, uh, for example, the parables is one. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, figurative language, I think, is used in, in a lot of the parables. Um, you know, when we go out and try to teach the lost, we're not, we're not literally throwing out seeds. It's figurative of the Word of God, right? Um when the definite is put for the indefinite, Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, when said in mockery, 1 Kings 18, verse 27. And lastly, I have here common sense. <laughs> common sense, uh, which is not so common. Uh, Revelation 17, 2, and 1 Corinthians 3, and verse 2. Okay, 
our text, getting to our text. And like I said before, a lot more could be said regarding introduction. If you want a whole lot of detail, and there's a lot of books out there. Um, this is not the right one. Um, right, right man, wrong book. Um, oh, come here. Let's see, I have... Uh, Homer Haley. Uh, and no, this is not sponsored by them. Um, <laughs> I wrote a book, uh, The Book of Revelation, Introduction and Commentary. It goes into a lot of detail. Uh, I'm not going to say I agree 100% with every single thing that he says, but he does give a lot of good information here. And um, apparently I exaggerated last time I said most of his book is, is, is uh, introduction. Uh, 89 pages is introduction and background to revelation and that's homer haley introduction and commentary um another here i have is uh to mention donald r taylor wrote a book on uh on uh, revelation uh this is actually one of the books i used when i was in uh, the bible institute in missouri um his introduction is uh three pages long um this one i'm not as familiar with this is the Seven Churches of Asia Minor, and I haven't read it, and so I'm not even going to, um, I'm not going to recommend it because I haven't read it. Um, another one that's highly recommended, though I haven't, I've only read bits and pieces of it, but it has a very good reputation among faithful brethren. Is one by uh, Summers called "Worthy Is the Lamb." Again, another book on Revelations by Ray Summers, um, and so his introduction here is. Um, Let's see, what is that? that? Is 15 pages. His background to the book is a lot of this is, at least in my in my opinion, just expanding upon what we've already talked about. Um, wow, his background is more than just background. So let's see here, historical background. He's kind of like Homer Haley, apparently. Because uh, his his background and things are very very extensive, and I say this just for purposes of uh, furthering your study. If you want to talk, look more at it. Um, let's see his introduction and background and all those types of things are um, ninety eight pages, and so there's a lot of things that can be said about it. A lot can be said about interpretation. Again, Summers. It appears specifically spends a lot of time talking about interpretation and a method of interpretation and things such as that, which is not bad, but we're not going to spend our time to cover 89, 90 pages of those types of things. We want to talk about the text itself. Um, but Summers and Haley, I can recommend wholeheartedly, or uh, Summers I haven't read, so I it's recommended by some brethren who have recommended it to me, and so I feel like I can recommend it to you as well. Homer Haley, it's, I do recommend wholeheartedly. Uh, Max Patterson, who taught me Greek when we were in preaching school there at Balmaston, Missouri, uh, he wrote a commentary, he calls it an outline commentary, uh, on Revelation. Uh, he wrote one trans, one version of it, then he went back and updated some things. I don't remember the differences between the two. Um, but either one of those would be fine. You can get those on uh, PDF now uh, by contacting his son, Kevin uh, Patterson. And uh, if you're interested in that, you actually can contact OEBS uh, at OEBS.org. And they can uh, make sure that you can, you can contact the right person there. Anyway, so let's get to the book of Revelation. I say all that's 
I said all that to say there's a lot more detail we could go into, but for my purpose, I'm not going to go into all that detail with the introduction. Okay, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I'll be reading from the New King James. Like in other times, I may jump over to King James things just to see some differences and things, but we'll be reading primarily from the New King James like we always have. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. (laughs) That one verse says a lot, to be honest. That one verse says a lot. We mentioned before the word revelation to mean something that is revealed, uh, uncovered, unveiled. And so this is a veiled message of Christ was being given to John by an angel of God. John was to tell this message to fellow believers to warn them of things that would happen soon. Uh, he should he uh, showed the importance of this message by sending it through an angel of God. And uh, as I go through this, I'm seeing me correcting some some typos. Uh, he showed the importance of this message by sending it through an angel uh, angel of God. Uh, the key phrase to much of this book centers around, or the key point to much of this book centers around the, f- the phrase, uh, things which must shortly take place. Uh, he repeated this, he repeatedly makes mention of the quickness when things would come to pass. Uh, we'll see later in verse 3, how quickly things are going to come to pass. And if it's going to come to pass quickly, it means it can't be future tense still today. Um, verse three mentions how quickly chapter two, verse six, and also chapter, excuse me, chapter 22, verse six, and also chapter 22 and verse 10. The book begins and closes with assurances of of these things coming to pass very soon. The book does deal with final judgment and a new order of things beyond the judgment, which were in the distant future and are yet to come. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 11, Revelation 21, verse 8, as it does discuss the judgment day. It does discuss the church being uh, brought up to be with Christ, uh, which are which is future tense. Um, but not all the book is talking about things future tense. That's the point we're making here. The major portion of the Revelation pertain to things at hand, events that would soon take place. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says, he Who bore witness, going back to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So John was a witness of the word and the testimony of Christ, the order in which the revelation came uh, from God to Jesus, to the angel, to John, who wrote it down. The mind of God has now been revealed to the mind of man. So it came from God to Jesus, to the angel, and then to John. Verse 3 of Revelation 1 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the first of seven Beatitudes found in Revelation, here in verse 3. Chapter 14 and verse 13 is the second. Chapter 16, verse 15 is the third. Chapter 19, verse 9 is the fourth. Chapter 20, verse 6 is the fifth. Chapter 22, verse 7 is the 6th, and chapter 22, verse 14 is the 7th. Again, seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Uh, the person is only, is only blessed when they read and hear the words of the prophecy, the idea uh, being hearing it and understanding the message of the prophecy, 
and doing the uh, and following the commands within it. Why? Because the time was near when these things would take place. The time was near, which tells us that it can't be referencing. Uh, we know we know later when things were supposed to be future tense because he talks about the judgment day, and uh, you know Christ, you know the faithful being brought up to be with Christ, the church, the bride of Christ. Um, later in chapters uh, 22 and, and uh, chapters uh, 20 and 21, rather. Uh, but here, these things are soon to come to pass. Is a, and to reference, Revelation deals primarily with the coming destruction of Jerusalem that's coming very soon, the rise and fall of evil, uh, which would coincide a lot with 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 uh, Caesars rising and falling because the Caesars, especially during the time period which we're looking at, were incredibly evil. Um, you remember we mentioned uh, just a few moments ago how the, the first one to claim he was God was Gal uh, Gal I almost almost want to say Galaga, but uh, uh, the Caesar. Uh, Galuga Caesar back in 37 40 from 37 to 41 he's the first one to claim he was God um, Domitian though accepted uh, others calling him master and God and so they believed they were gods uh, little G of course false gods uh, but they did believe they were gods and so these guys were in many ways insane I mean Nero is is oftentimes mentioned as and Domitian was I mean he had he was no weakling uh, but Nero was known for uh, placing Christians on spikes and lighting them on the fire to light the pathway to his palace. It's, that's more than just a little bit of psycho. Uh, and so these guys were definitely hardcore. They thought they were the beginning and end of everything and that people should should treat them as gods. <laughs> um, crazy, crazy things going on. And you think about what we're going through today, and we say that, when I say that phrase, what we're going through today, we could, we could say that phrase in various time periods throughout history. We were talking about here in 2022, you're talking about back in 1930, uh, back to your period of World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, uh, the period of of uh, you know segregation and then you know the period of of you know bringing schools together and those types of things ending a lot of uh, racist acts uh, false laws concerned not that they're not not there's still not that there are not still some things out there that definitely have some problems but the point I'm making is uh, we could say at any point in history that in our history that we are aware, that we are familiar with a lot familiar with you know 1900s 1800s and moving up we could say you know we have we haven't experienced anything in our time compared to what these guys were doing um the closest i think at least in my mind we think about people being killed for being um religious <laughs> not christians but religious but the Jews, the Holocaust, was probably one of the closest things we see. When we see a lot of evil today, don't get me wrong. Um, we see Christians at different places, or people pro professing to be Christians at different places, are getting their heads cut off for it. Um, but Hitler, at least in my mind, was one of the few who publicly, well known, well documented, outright slaying millions of, or thousands and i don't forget how many jews died in the holocaust uh and you know aside from from the caesars um 
until you get to Hitler, there's not a lot of there. That was one of the first ones we see in what I call our time. Um, but the point I'm making here is that us today, yes, we're facing some hardships. But here in the United States, we're yet to be strapped to a pole and lit on fire to light someone's pathway simply because we're a Christian. doesn't mean that day's not coming because people have crazy ideas. But um, these guys, you know, they were treated like gods. And we have some politicians today that <laughs> they won't say it, but they feel like they're above everybody else. Anyway, we won't get into all that. Let's look at verse 4 and following of Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We don't even get past, we don't get very far at all before you start seeing some language. It's like, okay, what are we talking about here? The seven spirits, right? Uh, remember, we, we mentioned already how the word seven is a reference to completeness and perfection. That's why later when we talk about the number 666 and the number 7, well, what does 666 actually mean? It just means it's not perf- it's not perfect. It's less than perfection. Uh, it's, it's not a mark of <laughs> what a lot of people think of today. When people see $6.66 pop up on a cash register, they freak out. Uh, you know, however, people say, oh, here, we'll take off a penny, we're at a penny. I'm like, it's just numbers. I don't say it like that. I say it's just numbers here, just whatever. <coughs> I mean, today, for us today, uh, it's not something to be afraid of. But people do. They, they they still have a great misunderstanding about that. But it just means it's not complete. It's not perfect. The number seven representing completeness. Anything less than that did not, did not represent completeness or perfection. And so 666 is a way of showing it falls short of that. We'll talk more about that later when we get to that section. But here in verse 4, uh, he says, grace to you and peace uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come. I love it when you mute your mic when you, when you cough. Um, and so from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a, that's a clear reference to Christ. Uh, who I, who uh, is, who was, and who is to come. Um, who is is talking about, that is, present tense. Um he is presently what? He is presently alive. He's existing. Who 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 was? He's always been existing in the past. And who is to come? He's going. To, he's coming back. And, well, if he's to come, who is it? It's, it's Christ. Uh, that's what he's talking about there. And from the seven spirits who are before his uh, throne, there in verse four, the spirit is before the throne. Um, excuse me. The seven spirits is uh, represents the uh, Holy Spirit as he would be present at all seven. Uh, churches of, of Asia. The Spirit is before the throne of God, ready to carry out His will. The seven churches are located in the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor, or Turkey. They're located in a semicircle with Ephesus in the center. And so, uh, I have here my notes, and my notes are a, compl- are a compiling of material I've gleaned from my own studies and from other commentaries. Um, so I can't say that, oh, I, I can't remember it, you know, some of these things coming from someone else or from just my own studies. But here, the 7 in verse 4 can be a reference to the idea of being at, as I have here in my notes, at every one of those seven churches or just it being, again, representing perfection being and perfection being in, in the Holy Spirit. 
here uh the holy spirit being righteous and so could seven apply to them in a in a apply to him in a, in a perfection way and righteousness way i think it can um I'm not convinced that it's the seven spirits as mentioned because there's seven churches of Asia. I don't think that's talk, uh, that's what he's referencing. But he is there at every single, every single congregation in which John is writing to. Um, verse 5 says here, uh, And from Jesus Christ, uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and a ruler over the kings of the earth. Um the rule over the kings of the earth. Um, so, from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness. Um, now, you remember back in verse 4, it says, He who is, who was, and who is to come. Um, that could be a reference to, you know, like I said before, that's reference, I think it sounds like me it's a reference to Christ. If it is, and Christ is mentioned again here in verse 5 specifically, um, who is to come is why I apply that to Christ, not to, is God coming back in the second coming? No, the Son is. Um, was God who is and who was? Yes, he is everlasting. Uh, in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and a ruler over the kings of the earth. It's not, At least in my mind, it's not uncommon to see a certain aspect of the of the Godhead being described more than once, uh, the Holy Spirit, God, Christ. Um, I mean, Christ is referenced here, or is referenced here as the the ruler over the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness from Jesus Christ, who is, who was, who is to come, uh, who is, who was, and who is to come. I think all those are referencing Christ. At least, I mean, of course, uh, I don't I don't think he'd be referencing anyone else. Uh, the firstborn from the dead, meaning he was the first one who who died, rose again, and then lived forever. Um, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, just showing Christ being uh, over everything. The Bible tells us that God has put all things under his under his feet. Um, and so, again, referencing Christ. Uh, he is the one who is writing this, God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, to uh what we say, from God to Christ uh, to the angel and then to John, right? I mean, that's how we put it earlier. Uh, looking at verse, um, excuse me, let's continue reading verse 5. I stopped too soon. My my Bible program has this broken up a little bit, and sometimes I stop halfway through unintentionally. But verse 5 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our, own sin, from our sins in his own blood. Clearly talking about Christ. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how in the middle of all this talking, this is pointing out, making it very clear that this is coming from Christ, right? And and what is mentioned in here, he's the one who saves mankind. By, by you know, God's plan, God's love for mankind shown through Christ, the blood of Christ is shed, and mankind is washed from their own sins. It's amazing how that is brought up several times. I think, at least in my mind, just another reminder who we're talking about, who he's, what he's done for us. This is who is speaking, not just some random, this isn't some random person. This is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who's doing this. Verse 6, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um. 
So the Trinity is mentioned in verses 4 and 5, God, the Holy Spirit, Christ. Again, some reference the 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 um, who is, who was, and who is to come as God, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and then Christ being there in verse 5. Um, I don't think you can talk about Christ and the Holy Spirit without talking about God. Um, anyway, let's look at verse... Um, Where I'm at, verse six. He has made us kings and priests to his God and to his God and Father. Past tense, we have, we have been made kings and priests. Kings and priests could be better translated a kingdom, priests to God. The kingdom was already in existence. A kingdom was one pictured of the redeemed with Christ as king and the body of, of, of redeemed as the subjects. Priests represent each of us as individuals who are able to offer up worship to God. First Peter two and verse nine. Since, since Jesus is our high priest, there is no earthly man through whom we have to go to reach God. This Bible teaching was changed in later centuries by man. We know this because the Catholics will teach you go and you confess your sins to the priest, right? And he tells you, you know, say however many prayers or whatever it is. Um, that's not biblical. <laughs> we go to God, we pray to God through Christ, who is our mediator, as Paul tells us, and as I believe the Hebrew writer also tells us, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator, means there's not anyone else. It's only Christ. To him be glory and dominion. Uh, the idea is all glory to be given to him. These words indicate dignity, majesty, power, and strength. Paul says that Christians are in the kingdom of Christ, Colossians 1, verse 13, and that Christ must reign until he comes again at the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. The kingdom of God is not for the future. It is. It was established in the first century, Hebrews 12, verse 28, and it continues today. God's children are the, are the citizens of this kingdom. We are priests that offer spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices to God. Romans 12, verse 1, Philippians 4, 18, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Peter says we are a royal priesthood, as I mentioned of earlier, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, and the same idea is taught here. Okay, we are going to stop there because we are out of time. Uh, when we come back next week, we will aim to pick up in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. I do thank you for being here with me today. Hope you have enjoyed this Bible study. Hope it has been encouraging to you. If you have any questions or comments, if you are part of our Facebook group, Bible Studies with Russ, feel free to leave a message uh, or a comment uh, below the posting of this video. If you are not, if you're listening online or whatever way you're listening, feel free to go to BibleWayMedia.org and you can contact me through that page on the Contact Us page. I'll be glad to answer any questions or concerns that you may have. I do thank you, thank you for being here with me today. Again, I hope you have enjoyed this Bible study. I hope to see you again next time.